0: Welcome everyone to the Dow of Wow. Hey, Doug, remember how the last time that we recorded this exact same episode of the podcast and decided we needed to redo it because we messed up too much? Mm. Uh, we were having a conversation about whether it is pronounced Tao or Tao. Yeah. Well, in the break, I found a YouTube video um, that clarified that for me. And it is actually both Taoism and Taoism with the letter T and D. Um, those are both perfectly acceptable forms of spelling. However, uh, it is pronounced Taoism with a D uh, in both cases because it comes from the Chinese character Dao.
1: Okay, so it's the Dao of Wow, even though It's, it's got the Dao of Wow, yeah. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you very much, Laura Hilliger, for for clearing that up. Um, I'm Doug Belshaw. I'm an open thinker working with We Are Open Co-op. I help organizations with people, product, and process. And I've worked with organizations that you might have heard of, like Moodle and Mozilla, and some that you probably haven't.
0: And I'm Laura Hilliger, also a We Are Open Co-op member. I am an open strategist and a generalist doer who also worked at Mozilla. For the last five years, I've been doing loads of work with Greenpeace International. Uh, I'm also an open organization ambassador, kind of a general internet-y person, and I also write books and make stuff.
1: Cool. How's your audiobook going at the moment, Laura?
0: I am on schedule up until this week, but I have the feeling that this week I'm going to get my uh, myself off my own schedule. I'm okay. I'm a little fearful that I'm not going to have time for it.
1: So if you haven't read Maybe Zombies, I suggest you go and have a look at that, because it is a fantastic read. Oh,
0: thank
1: you. Okay, so we're going to kick off this DAO of WoW with a podcast centred on one of our favourite isms, which is cooperativism. Over the next few episodes, we're going to talk about other isms, um, ologies, and Asians, and we've got loads of ideas for that, but it made sense for us to start with kind of co-ops and cooperativism, because we're a member of a co-op. So, Laura, what is a co-op? Uh,
0: I think that we should start with the quotey quotes from the internet. Um, so I'm going to read the definition of a co-op from Wikipedia. Uh, it says, a cooperative, also known as co-op, cooperative, or coop, is an autonomous association of people united voluntarily to meet their common economic social and cultural needs and aspirations through a jointly owned and democratically controlled business. I don't know why awesome. my tongue is getting so tied up.
1: I think it would be better if it was a comic business. I think that would be even better.
0: good <laughs> like dem- democratical comical bu- yeah. Um, but
1: the but the ICA, so uh this is the one that I usually get wrong. It stands for the International Cooperative Alliance. This is the kind of umbrella network of of cooperatives worldwide. They define um, cooperatives in the following way. So they say cooperatives are people-centered enterprises, owned, controlled, and run by and for their members to realize their common economic, social, and cultural needs and aspirations. Quite a mouthful there.
0: Yeah, it's also the same phrasing as on Wikipedia. So I'm guessing Wikipedia is uh, referencing and citing the ICA with that common economic, social, cultural needs, and aspirations.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Um, you know, I like to I like to um, simplify a little bit when I talk about just like in general conversation, I find I often have to define uh, what a cooperative is. Um, and I, I like to explain cooperatism in relationship or in comparison to capitalism, um, because I feel like capitalism is a system that everybody kind of gets because we all live inside of it. Um, and and so when I'm trying to help people understand what a cooperative is, I often use the example that, uh, you know, that in capitalism, one shareholder can have multiple shares of a business, whereas in cooperatism, one member equals one vote. So one member can never have, you know, controlling uh, shares in a cooperative because um, it, it just doesn't work that way. And I, I find that that really helps people sort of imagine the the difference between a capitalist corporation and a cooperative.
1: Yeah. So we're not talking about communism here. Like cooperatives exist within, you know, the capitalist world in which we live, but they're fundamentally different. And for me, the way that I usually describe it is that cooperatives aren't extractive for the very reasons that you give there, Laura. So um this is people who are doing the work and owning the business at the same time. So that's different from someone extracting value by being a shareholder in an organization where they don't work or um, just being a director and owning a lot more of the business um, than anyone else. And what that means in practice is that you're likely to make decisions that prioritize the long-term success and sustainability of the organization of the co-op over any short-term financial gains and being able to like cash out so that you make money and move on, um, you know that you're going to be in this for like the long haul, I guess.
0: Yeah, and it's also, I mean, it's also sort of a an equalizing form, right? Because you're, you know, it doesn't money, matter how much money you have; you can't buy control in a cooperative system. Mm-hmm.
1: You could buy the entire co-op, Maybe we'll talk about that later. But that's not like wheedling your way in, you know, like you get activist shareholders who try and take over control of a company and it's a very adversarial kind of thing. Um, the kind of thing you see on TV shows and and films, it's not like that. Yeah. Um, Okay. So the ICA talk about these seven cooperative principles, and these are important, uh, because these are in, our articles in corporation for our co-op, which we'll talk about later, but should we just go through those? Because I think they're quite illustrative of, of what a co-op is and what it's not. Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So the first one is voluntary and open membership. And this for me, when I first came to co-ops, this was quite confusing for me because I was like, well, I don't just want anyone joining my co-op. But that's not what it's about. When it's talking about voluntary and open membership, it means two things. First of all, you define criteria in terms of who is eligible eligible to join your co-op. And then anyone who meets that eligibility, then they come in. But it also means that if you're working with an organization, like if we have a collaborator with our co op, they don't have to, like, we can't coerce them into joining our co op. We can't say, like, if you don't join, we're not going to give you any work. It's their choice as to whether they want to join our co op or not. Um, It's their kind of, they're using their agency, I guess.
0: Yep. Yeah. The second um, cooperative principle is democratic member control. Uh, and so this this really just means that the co-op is controlled by its members rather than any distant, far-off group of people or, you know, people who are trying to profit from other people's labor, uh, people who have more money. Um, that's not how it works. It is controlled by its members and in a democratic way. So all members have, as I said before, one member, one vote. Um, And the way that a cooperative um, actually is set up to to create that democratic uh, member control really depends on how many members there are and what kind of decision making processes they put into place. Um, But Mm -hmm. it's important to remember that the member, uh, the co-op is controlled by all of its members.
1: That's right. And it, it kind of links to the next one, the third one, member economic participation. So this one is about how members not only contribute to the amount of capital that the co-op has got, the amount of money and things that it owns, but they also democratically control that. So an example I would give here would be, think about like Uber drivers. Uber drivers, they earn less and less money over time because algorithms change, etc. And any profit they do make goes to distant, far-off shareholders, some of which are like sovereign wealth funds and this kind of thing. Whereas if they were co-op, as some taxis are, for example, in, in Catalonia, if you go there to Barcelona, you'll see co-ops um, of, of taxis. Well, they are, like you just said, Laura, controlled by their members, and they control the money that they're making as well. They decide together how to like, divvy up that money, what what fares they set, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. So the next, um, the next one is also related. They're all related: uh, autonomy and uh, independence. So co-ops are autonomous and they interact with other organizations, other companies, other governments um, on their own terms, never coerced. Uh, and this really you know this really sort of links back to democratic member control because the idea of autonomy and independence with the, the cooperative is really about making sure that any sort of relationships that the cooperative enters into is something that uh, you know, the, the boundaries of that relationship are overseen by that democratic member control body. Um, so it's really about the autonomy of the cooperative itself. Uh, as opposed to the autonomy uh, of each individual member. And that autonomy is rather covered under the voluntary and open membership and the agency found within.
1: Cool. Um, Number six is education, training, and information. This is an important one, especially given our backgrounds. So this is about providing that education, training, and information to members. And the reason for that, it's not just so that they can be a better little capitalists to make more money for, for people elsewhere. The point of it is so that they get better at making decisions. They become more productive so that it strengthens the, the co-op of which they're part. It means that the organization is more effective. So it's, it's different to kind of, I don't know, like professional development within a regular organization because it's also focused on making the organization better at making decisions as well, if you see what I mean. Mm
0: Uh, Number six is cooperation among cooperatives. So I know that Doug just said that the education, training, and information was number six. I didn't interrupt him to tell him it was number five. I can't count. (laughs) That's okay. Um, uh, Cooperation among cooperatives. Uh, I really like this principle. Basically, it simply means that co-ops serve their members and seek to work with other co-ops to grow and strengthen the cooperative movement. Um, and so we actually, We Are Open is also a member of a of a Megazord uh, co-op, which uh, Megazord, that comes from Power Rangers, right?
1: Hmm. What is a Megazord, Laura Hilliger?
0: I feel like I always get Megazord and Optimus Prime switched in my head. because well, Optimus then, Prime, Optimus is, Prime, Prime from, is also a Megazord, right?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, from Transformers. But we're yeah. talking about Power Rangers yeah. and the Megazord there.
0: Yeah, anyways, a, a Megazord, for anyone who is not as nerdy as we are, uh, is in the Power Rangers, it's when all of the different Power Rangers come together and then they form the Megazord, which is like the most powerful Mega Power Ranger. We should, yes, we will include a Megazord GIF in the show notes so that you understand what we are talking about. In any important. case, this is important stuff, really. Uh, almost as important as our membership to uh, Kotech, which is a big collective of co-ops who are working uh, as digital service agencies, as techie, uh, techie people, development agencies, this kind of stuff. Um, they are all uh, pretty, fo- pretty focused on um, internet-y kinds of things. And this mega-zord of a co-op is a collection of co-ops and it's awesome. Um, because we're really trying to support each other and help each other. Smaller co-ops learn a lot of things from bigger co-ops, um, you know. And when any any of the members are in any sort of a pickle, um, the rest, of, you know, they can reach out and find support amongst um, their colleagues in in the megazord.
1: Yes, yeah, so that's different to like a strategic alliance between two capitalist organizations who really are in it for themselves and just happen to be going the same direction. This is trying to get to a changed state in the world uh, by cooperation amongst those cooperatives. Um, number 724, because I can't count, number seven is concern for community. So this is really interesting. So communities um, are central to what cooperatives work for. Interestingly, cooperatives started in Rochdale near Manchester in England. And obviously that was very much a a local thing, like your local community. And we still have cooperatives serving their local communities. But for us, for example, well, our communities are online, they're virtual communities around the world. So wherever your communities are, we agree policies which help and strengthen those communities, however we decide to define them. And we'll get on to kind of what our co-op does later but this is a this concern for community is a fundamental part of what it means to be a cooperative
0: that's right so those are those were the the seven cooperative principles um that are you know kind of part of every cooperative's identity um and you know we i think i think our co-op and also all of the co-ops in uh the megazord uh in CoTech, uh i think that we all sort of think of 21st century digital cooperatives as a way to put flexibility into working practices um so that the, so that that flexibility is really to the benefit of workers rather than you know the organization or the company that they're working for mm.
1: yeah I, because i think that all the stuff around zero hour contracts the gig economy that kind of thing the flexibility that people are talking about there is always on the side of workers. It's never flexibility in terms of employee, employers. Whereas what we're talking about here in terms of flexibility is flexibility in terms of the whole organization, the way that it's structured, the way that it's owned, that kind of thing. Um, I know, for example, Outlandish, who we work a lot with, they basically use zero hour contracts, but to the benefit of workers rather than the benefit of, of employers. Because like other cooperatives, their members, own the co-op, so they decide how they want to to work and how they want to interact with with one another. So, yeah, the flexibility in working practices for co-ops isn't just forcing workers to be ever more flexible while you know someone's getting rich somewhere else.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think um, I think maybe we should talk a little bit about a very common misconception around cooperativism. Uh, which that? is that it is it, like a lot of people think that it's like this weird niche, niche thing. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, we live in a capitalist society, capitalism rules the day. However, uh, cooperatism, uh, the movement of cooperatism is actually pretty big. Um, so co-ops employ, uh, more than 250 million people, um, around the world, which is a, a pretty, a pretty good chunk, um, of, of the workforce, and that hmm. statistic is a is a number of years uh, old. And they also um, they also do over two. I think uh, the statistic I read a couple of years ago was two trillion dollars uh, in in overturn every year.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and the ICA have on their website they say that look, the cooperative movement isn't this marginal thing. At least twelve percent of humanity is a cooperator. And is involved in some way with any of the three million cooperatives on Earth, mm-hmm. um, and we'll put a link to that in in the show in the show notes. So this isn't just like a little thing. Um, and also, the other thing I think, Laura, that people often think about is like, oh well, cooperatives are fine if you're just like a few people like wanting to do some interesting stuff. But actually, there are cooperatives like the one in Spain, Mondragon. They run their own university. They have they employ hundreds of thousands of people. They have smaller spin-off co-ops, et cetera. So co-ops can be can be tiny, like ours, like four people, but they can also be absolutely huge. Mm-hmm. And they scale just like any organization scales depending on how much money they've got and how they make decisions and how they decide to structure. The important difference, as we've already talked about, is that they have those seven cooperative principles and, crucially, um, workers own the organization. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of examples of. Um, I, th- I think I always think that it's interesting to learn that a company that you interact with on a regular basis is uh, cooperative. So, mm. like I know um, the first time that I went to the UK and there was like a co-op super- supermarket on every corner. I I thought I thought okay, that's um, you know good good name, but it's not really a co-op until you know you guys told me yes, it is. And I couldn't imagine it because it's really on every corner, and co-op, the co-op grocery store, must be huge.
1: No, it really is. And the interesting thing there is that you get like a loyalty card for going to different shops, like Tesco or Sainsbury's or whatever, and that gets you points. But you're just a consumer, whereas with the co-op, you own a little bit of it, Mm -hmm. and you get to decide what to do with that money. Like you literally can vote in your community where some of the the proceeds are going. Uh, which is an important thing to do also another shop which is john lewis which is a a chain of large department stores in the uk i don't think they necessarily call themselves a co-op but they are worker owned and operated which is kind of the same thing in in what we're talking about here
0: Yeah, there's also, um, there's a clothing brand in the United States that has like a lot, a lot of physical, well, I mean, I guess they're probably closed now, but physical in-person stores called REI. It's an outdoor brand. Uh, And I recently learned that they are also a a co-op and, you know, they're very, very well known in a large swath of the United States. So. Yeah, for, for listeners, you know, uh, take a look around, and I'm sure you will find some examples of cooperatives that you interact with on a regular basis, and you might not have known that they were cooperatives. Doug, did I lose you? You're muted.
1: No, I decided to mute. That was oh, a good okay. idea, wasn't it? So what I was saying during that cool bit where I was muted was, um, that Wikipedia has a page for everything, right? And there's a page for some of the more um, famous cooperatives in different countries around the world. So, yeah, have a look at that. And you might be surprised, like Laura said, for some of the things which you didn't realise were cooperatives, which actually are. In the UK, it's interesting because a lot of the time they do tend to use co-op in their name. Um, Not all of them do. SUMA, for example, which is a Whole Foods co-op, don't tend to use co-op in their name, but other ones are. I know some football clubs are cooperatively owned, um, et cetera. Um,
0: a, um, you know, you you've mentioned um, you know UK co-ops quite a bit. And I know something about the UK and the cooperative structure, which is that it doesn't actually exist. Is that right?
1: That's interesting. Yeah. Entity. Yeah, that's right. So in if you go to places like Italy or some places in South America. You can literally go and set up a co-op. Like you can fill in a form and you can set up a co-op. That's not the case in the UK where we set up our co-op. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a hack, I guess. Um, well, I can talk about a little bit about that. But I think in Germany you can set up, if not a co-op, something like a co-op. Is that right? Uh,
0: yeah. No. It's a it is a co-op. It's called a Genossenschaft. Uh, in in Germany, that's the German word for cooperative. But it is um, I don't I don't know if the legal form actually references the seven international cooperative principles. Um, but it is meaning one member one vote in the German business form. So in order to be eligible, you have to provide articles of incorporation that you know clearly lay out that your um, that your Genossenschaft, your cooperative, is democratically owned and controlled one member one vote.
1: Hmm. so to go a little bit um to geek out a little bit on legal forms for a moment let's just go through how our co-op is set up um so rewind what what we are now five years have we been around now laura i think we're uh,
0: going to be five in may right
1: Yeah, so rewind five years. So five years ago, we're thinking about working together. We've worked together at Mozilla and there's there's you and me and there's Brian and John. And we're thinking, how can we work together? And there's some talk of, you know, maybe I can join as a director of your business or maybe we can do some some subcontracting or whatever. And John Bevan comes along and John's steeped in kind of the cooperative movement and uh, labor activism, et cetera. And he says, well, why don't we set up a co-op? So we get some advice because you can't just go and set up a co-op in the UK. And we get some advice from a, uh, a guy called Sean Whelans, who um, has a lot of experience in the co-op movement. And he tells us in a, in a pub in London that basically there's about 80 different ways that you can set up a co-op in the UK. So he guides us eventually towards this particular structure. And what we've got effectively is a regular limited company, but with two little differences, two twists. The first one is that we're a company which is limited by guarantee without share capital. So like one of us, Laura can't have a hundred shares and I can only have 20. That's not the way that it works. Everyone who's a director gets one share. That's the first thing. Okay. But we could,
0: I mean, we could, for example, only have one share, right? Like if, can the co-op exist if we only have one member? Yes,
1: yeah, so you can have a co-op with one member. It's a bit uh, odd, but yeah. You that is too. weird. Yeah, okay. and, and just to say, like going back to what we were talking about earlier, you can sell your business. Of course you can, but everyone has to agree to sell basically their share and then the whole business would get sold to someone else. And there was an example of this that Sean gave us recently. It was actually in a, I think he wrote about it in Stir to Action magazine. We'll put that link in the in the show notes. And basically, there was this large brewery brewing beer, I think, in America, and they all decided, all the workers decided to sell out to um, a big capitalist company. And happy for them, they all made loads of money because they all had one vote and they all owned a bit of the, the business rather than the directors getting rich and the workers being made redundant or, or yeah. whatever.
0: Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. What's the, sec- the, um? what's that second, uh, that second difference?
1: Uh, yeah. For- so the second thing um, other than being a company limited by guarantee without share capital is that we put those international principles of cooperation into our articles of incorporation. So for anyone who's served a business before, um, you have these articles of incorporation saying, you know, what, what do you exist to do? who's a member of your business, you know, your financial structure, that kind of thing. And the first bit, the, in the articles of corporation, we've got those seven international principles of cooperation, which basically says we exist to do these seven things. Like that's mm-hmm. what we're here to do. Um, now other companies are structured differently outlandish who we've already mentioned. They're uh, an LLP, they're a limited liability company. Um, practice there's lots of different ways you can structure it and it, it depends on what you want to do and you should probably get some advice just as you would do if you're setting up any kind of business yep. but um yeah you can see as if it's useful um, at company's house and we'll put the link in there
0: yeah i think i um I'm really, I'm really pleased that we were able to access Sean Wheeler to help us um, set this up because, I mean, he was basically living uh, the seven cooperative principles. We were not yet a, a, co- a co-op, but he was, you know, um, essentially bringing us in, giving us great advice on on how do we do this in the UK. Um, you know, concern for community and and education, training, information, all those principles. Um, we sort of got to experience them firsthand when we you know really only had the idea of setting up a co-op
1: so we've gone a little bit as americans say inside baseball there yes um, to, to geek to geek out a bit um about how to set up a cooperative but let's just zoom out a little bit uh, just before we move on to talk about like well what difference does it make in practice how your how your company's structured who cares like for you laura what's the what's the difference here
0: well I mean, honestly, I I think for me, the big difference is that, you know, creating, creating a structure, um, you know, that is really built around the principle of, um, equality and yeah, I mean, a, a real power balance. I think, I think that by default, we're sort of groomed in our society to understand hierarchy and to, you know, and to kind of quote unquote learn our place in society, you know, and that feels very disempowering to me. Um, because, you know, like it it's essentially allowing somebody else to tell you what your place is. Whereas, you know, when you are involved in a community or a cooperative um, that has a structure that kind of negates the idea that hierarchy is the only way to control something. Um, there's a lot to learn around power dynamics, around agency, um, and also around em- emotional intelligence. I think um, my experience with the co-op community has shown that, you know, despite the fact that it is hard sometimes to make decisions, and it is hard sometimes to communicate, um, you, you know the creating a base level of equality allows us to have better, more human, more holistic uh, conversations. I didn't mean holistic. I mean, um, that kind of like bringing your whole self to work. I I feel like I really need that uh, in my working life. And, you know, being part of a co-op has has, uh, proven to be a good way for me to be able to do that.
1: Yeah. And I I think as a, you know, middle-aged, middle-class white man, I think that Uh, people like me have been very guilty in in terms of making sure that half the population uh, women and other people who don't define themselves as men have been excluded from decision making quite often in hierarchical organizations and also people of color and I think that over recent years, when we've had this massive resurgence of the the power of of women and people who don't define themselves as male, and also the Black Lives Matter movement, what we've seen, and the research backs this up, is that we make better decisions when we have more diverse people around the table, right? And we both went to a a workshop by Outlandish, which had that iceberg um, with the things above, like decisions and plans and communication and vision and mission and strategy and all those kinds of things. And then underneath that, underneath the surface, all of those things that, you know, like their perceptions and emotions and those kinds of things and the things which we often feel a bit weird bringing to work, we put that mask on Um, by making sure that we bring those that our full self to work. It means that we actually make better decisions because we're, we're not having to hide anything we're not having to do something just to get with the program or whatever it is
0: yep yeah and and not only by bringing our whole selves um but also by creating a structure that that encourages others to bring their whole selves and i think that the cooperative structure really helps with that because that one member one vote thing you know means that if you have a if you have an issue that is um in some way difficult you know the the idea that you can actually, um, you know, do an anonymous vote or something to, to help that issue get solved means that you're, you know, creating a space where everybody can have a voice, have a vote. So,
1: hmm. and, and just to say, this is never easy. Like the, this no. involves difficult conversations and it means that you have to do the hard work of getting on with people rather than just telling them to do stuff. But Hey, at the end of the day, if you could bring your full self to work, and you can be as creative and as um, open as you want to be, then surely that's like living your best life, right?
0: Yeah. And I mean, in the case of We are open, the whole reason that we kind of joined together was really, and you know, in an attempt to make the world a more open, transparent, democratic place to live and work, um, you know we do this by spreading the culture and processes and benefits of open working. That's what our I think that's our our tagline on our website, or I don't know. We wrote that, and I copy and paste it all the time because it's just a really helpful way to, you know, sort of explain what we do. We are experts in open source. Uh, we help people with digital service design, etc. And you know, for me, my my love of open source and my love of uh, cooperative really has to do with that open, transparent, democratic place to live and work.
1: Yeah. So if you're looking to either set up or convert uh, a business into being more inclusive. If you've got the kind of business, which like you need to eat and you need to make sure you pay your mortgage and stuff. But if you're not going to work every day just to make money, then you might want to look into um, whether you want to set up a a cooperative.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the great things about being part of a co-op is that, you know, you own the business. um, So you don't have to hide the things that you care about or that you don't care about. You can really bring your full self to work, like we were talking about earlier.
1: Yeah, but the problem with that sometimes is that because we're not putting out these like bland corporate tweets or whatever, somehow we end up, I don't know, like there's a risk of offending others, right? And you've talked in your Mm -hmm. newsletter, Laura, about everything is derogatory these days.
0: Yeah, uh, I always wanted to make, I was thinking about making a podcast called Everything is Derogatory, but maybe it should just be a segment in this one.
1: Well, why don't we just start now? Like, what's been on your mind lately?
0: I was going to say something about the landlord situation. So, like, in the current woke culture, there's, like, a lot of noise on the internet against people being landlords. Mm. Um, because you know you're essentially paying off your mortgage uh, through somebody else's hard work, kind of kind of thing. Um, and one of the conversations that that Eckhart and I have been having is around, um, you know, how how much do you give back to a society that is built in a particular way, uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: versus you know versus how much do you try to participate in that society so that you have more to give. Like the trickle, you know, the trickle down theory. Of no, economics. that's really interesting
1: because I've always been against people owning more than one home and mm-hmm. earning, you know, having a profit from other people. So I'm totally on the side of people who think landlords should be abolished. And it's interesting that um, my wife and I had this conversation at the weekend because in the Observer the newspaper in the UK, there was a bit in the money section talking um, to, to a woman who was late 30s. And she had a husband who was early 40s and they were just basically saving the minimum for their pension so that and so that they could buy a second property which would earn them money now as well as when they're older and it was interesting because you know you know what's like when your partner has slightly different views to you like my wife was saying well why don't we do something like that you know if we can afford to do that and i was like i am not going to profit of other people not being able to buy their own house. That is not something I'm gonna do at all. Um, and although I think the pension system's completely broken and it should be completely reformed, like I'm not so interested. Me, so <laughs>
0: let me tell you, I mean, but, but how? what about the flip side of the of the conversation, which is at the moment, people who profit from capitalist structures and money do not use their profits in a way that benefits the collective. Whereas if good people uh, profit from the system in some way, so for example, my next door neighbor, uh, she owns a little bit of property. She gives away everything that she has. She is a, a politician for the Green Party. She is a zero waste person. And she, like they are just the most giving people I've ever seen in my life. And she uses the profit that she makes from like renting a bunch of garages to people who don't, you know, Hmm. whatever, people who have too much stuff and need to store it in a garage, right? And so technically she is, um, you know, she is collecting rent from people, but it's not necessarily people who are hard up to pay rent, rather people who... So how do like how do you kind of square that circle? What are the you know what are the yeah. boundaries so,
1: of that? I was listening to a podcast this morning actually while I was on the exercise bike, and it was a guy talking to someone from Tactical Tech, you know the collective mm-hmm. in in Germany, um, about the data detox toolkit. And he was making a point during the conversation that you can never do enough. It's always people in your circle who are the harshest critics. Like, oh, you've switched to to Signal from WhatsApp. Well, Signal's not really the best. You should mm-hmm. be switching to like matrix or something. And it's always us people on our side, like being the harshest critics. And the other thing I was listening to was about GameStop and the whole stuff that's been gone about like meme shares and activism and stuff. And someone was saying that, you know, when you short a stock, when you're betting on that stock to go down, that is actually good for that system in that it stops the, a bubble happening. And apparently what happened, you know, during the dot-com bubble in the early 2000s, apparently what happened was that, for whatever reason, stocks couldn't be shorted easily, which meant mm-hmm. that this huge bubble existed and then exploded. So you had the worst of capitalism because people couldn't bet against people being successful. Mm-hmm. And so I guess what I'm hearing you say is, is something I, I would agree with, which is, if everyone does the same thing, we don't have the heterogeneity, is that the right word? To be able to have a diverse functioning system. Like we can't have everyone being capitalist. We can't have everyone being communist. Like there has to be a diversity of of stuff.
0: So what have we been paying attention to lately that's related to cooperatism? Doug, what do you got?
1: Um, Well, I've been paying attention for the last few years to platform co-ops. So these aren't kind of the co-ops that you and me are part of, Laura. These are co-ops which are owned by both the people who are supplying the services and the people who are using the services. So there's like a care co-op, for example, with people providing and using care services. Um, If you go to platform.coop, so that's .coop, Um, They define this as platform cooperatives are businesses that use a website, mobile app or protocol to sell goods or services. They rely on democratic decision making and shared ownership of the platform by workers and users. And there's also a useful link on Co-ops UK about that and why platform co-ops are a good place to buy and sell your services as opposed to your usual kind of venture capitalist backed uh, startup. So it's the difference between, like we're talking earlier, between like Uber, for example, and, you know, Spanish taxi drivers banding together to have a kind of a, a platform cooperative. And there's also some some useful books. I know you've been um, reading some ones as well, but I just want to put one in called Hours to Hack and to Own by Tribor Schultz or edited by Tribor Schultz and Nathan Schneider. This is a collection of essays. And um, I think we picked this up an event that we both went to, but it's really mm-hmm. good in terms of explaining how things could be different. How about you?
0: Yeah. So it's going to sound like a little bit of a weird suggestion, but I think people should read the book, How to Be Idle by Todd Hodgkinson. Um, it's a really interesting write-up about the historical context of our work-induced behavioral patterns. So it talks about, it talks about where our version of capitalism really came from, uh, not just from a theoretical perspective but practical things that happened in history that led us to be living in the system that that we have today and and it talks about stuff like you know where did the nine to five workday come from what did it look like before then and you know how did it become such a such a common understanding? Uh, And I think this is a a great book to look at when you're starting to think about how you want your work life to be, how you, you know, what kind of business do you want to own or what do you want to participate in um, during work? Um, And I think it makes a really strong historical case uh, for something else that we've been paying attention to for a number of, well, I've been paying attention to and trying to implement in my own life for a number of years, the four-day work week. Um, so we'll include a link to the fourdayworkweek.u.uk as well. Um, but this is, you know, this is really gaining traction, especially because there's been some research in the past couple of years, um, past five, 10 years, I'd say, that really shows that uh, people can only do creative work for so long. And we're living in a society where a lot of the work that we do, the knowledge-based work that we do, um, is you know, using those same parts of the brain. Uh, and so proponents of a four-day work week are essentially saying, hey, you know what? If we only work four days instead of five, we can spend that f- that last day, that fifth day, really on ourselves and gathering input for the week ahead.
1: Cool. I'm going to put a bonus link in here that we weren't planning to put in, but it's Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber. Uh, he died recently. Um, and this, this book came out. I haven't read the book yet. I've only re- read the article they came from. But basically, Dave Graeber talks about there being so many bullshit jobs, jobs that really shouldn't exist. um, And they're the opposite of the kind of fulfilling work you can find when you're doing stuff for yourself um, in collaboration with others.
0: I cannot wait to read that book.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's recap then. So what are the three things that people listening to this should have learned from this episode?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think the first and in our first podcast uh, that we're doing together, the, the DAO of Wow, I, you know, I'm glad that we focused on what cooperatives are and a little bit about how they work.
1: Mm-hmm. I think we've talked about why they're kind of radically different, actually, from your normal capitalist um, hierarchical organization.
0: Yeah, and then, I mean, in the last, uh, the last bit, I think we've been talking quite a bit about how you can think differently about your work life and that you know if you're unhappy in your work life that there are alternatives uh, that are a little bit more human centric. I I mm. hope that I hope that folks are interested in that.
1: Cool. Okay, well until next time when we dive into a different topic. Cheers for now. Yeah. Bye.